and through to the end of 14. So this is um, chapter 13, verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further, further about the things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. They talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, amongst the whole city, gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against Paul, against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Then the Gentiles heard this. They were glad and honoured the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas were, the, were as, as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot amongst the Gentiles and the Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derby, and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, Stand up on your feet. And at that the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in a Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left, left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in, the, in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. 
Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowds from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. They returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for uh, the things that you have done throughout history Uh, in making the gospel known and Father we ask that uh, now as we think about those things that we've just read that you would speak to us, that you would open our hearts, that uh, we would receive your truth uh, and uh, the truth about Jesus Christ. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I've got a uh, short video that we're just going to watch from the end of the Second World War And as we watch it, just, it just goes for about two minutes, as we watch it, just think about what it must have been like for these people uh, to hear that the war had ended. So let's just watch that.
I love that. Uh, I love that scene of them all swaying. <laughs> it's like, what are they doing? Perhaps in uh, old Lang Syne. It reminds me of that. But it's remarkable, isn't it? I, you might have seen that before. It's one of the most famous uh, pieces of footage from uh, from the end of the war. And it's hard to imagine, I think, for us, what it would have been like. What would it have been like to be on the streets that day, tearing up income tax returns and phone books uh, and throwing them around celebrating because the war had finally finished. The war had rattled on for six years. Uh, Germany had already surrendered, but France, uh, sorry, uh, Japan was the, 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 comp- the country that they uh, were celebrating uh, having just surrendered as well. It was the best news uh, that those people could have heard. After six long years, uh, they heard that the war was over. And how did they respond? Well, they threw themselves onto the street and they uh, had this amazing celebration. If you've got good news, you celebrate it, but you also tell people about it. You make it known. The Bible describes the message of Christianity as good news, as uh, something exciting that has happened that's being reported Uh, If you were here last week, we saw that the message about Jesus is the good news that after our war with God, the war that we waged against him, denying him, rejecting him, putting to death his own son, after our war with God, God has declared an amnesty through Jesus. After trying to throw God out of our world, through Jesus, God has made it possible for us to know God and to be accepted by God. God has given us the hope Uh, of being renewed people, uh, living in a renewed world at peace with God and with each other. And this passage that we're looking at this morning is an account from a man named Luke about two men, Paul and Barnabas, who in about 50 AD, they went around the Mediterranean, sent by the church, making the good news of what God had done known to people. The passage that we read uh, takes place in the middle of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey uh, and we follow Paul and Barnabas as they hop around the Mediterranean making that gospel known. And what this passage shows us, I think, is some of the ways that people respond to that message. Here it is, they have this great message of the gospel, this great news about what God has done. How do people respond to that? How do people deal with that? Well, there's a few ways I think that this passage shows us that they, uh, how they responded. First of all, the first response that Paul and Barnabas uh, receive is enthusiasm and joy. Their mission was received with enthusiasm and joy. Uh, right at the beginning of the passage, we read in verse 42 how the people invited Paul and Barnabas to speak further with them. Uh, in verse 44, we're told, "...on the next Sabbath almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord." incredible uh, picture that that Luke paints now, uh, you know uh, presumably it's not actually the whole city but it's the kind of thing that you might uh, say in the newspaper after Hawthorne won the grand final they come down to visit uh, Launceston uh, and the whole city turns up at uh, whatever Aurora Stadium or whatever it is uh, down here right all these people turn up the excitement is palpable people are going what are they going there to hear they're going to hear the reports from the players themselves and from the coach himself about what it was like to win the grand final. What happened? Tell us about the day. Tell us about what it means to be victorious Hawthorne. Or it's like those pictures that we saw just before of people on the streets after the end of World War II. Great crowds of people turning out to celebrate and to hear the the news of what's happened. 
And so too in Acts 13, the people gather to hear this report from Paul and Barnabas about what God has done in Jesus. And when the Gentiles hear, when the, the, the non-Jewish people hear about the good news, they, 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 when they hear that the good news is not just for uh, the Jewish nation, but for everyone, for the whole world, they're excited that they're overcome. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. How was the ministry of Paul and Barnabas received? It was received with enthusiasm and joy. Paul says, uh, and why shouldn't it be, I should say, why shouldn't it be received with enthusiasm and joy? Because it's good news. How else do you receive good news? When you hear the war is over, what do you do? You run onto the streets. You don't sit in your office or be like that man standing on the street who looked like he was half asleep. Paul says in verse 47, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul and Barnabas are bringing light to people who don't know God. What's it like not to know God? It's like fumbling around in the darkness. It's like waking up in the middle of the night and not being able to find your way. It's like walking through a dark place at night, through a dark uh, uh, city street and worrying whether someone's going to come out from behind one of the shadows and, and, and attack you. But the good news about Jesus shines a light into the lives of those who are in darkness. Jesus lights the path to, to God. He lights the path to life. Jesus dispels the terrors of the world, the darkness, the shadows. He's defeated evil at the cross and one day he'll put away evil once and for all when he returns to judge the living and the dead. And that light that Jesus brings is light for all people. God's plan is for it to reach the ends of the earth. It's not just for a select group of people. It's not just for the in crowd. It's not just for those who are born into it. In fact, here in this chapter, it's the people who are born into it who, who don't want to hear. They say, no, I don't want to listen to that. And it's the people who are not born into it who are excited to hear the message. It'd be like John Howard turning up to a Liberal Party gathering uh, and being booed off the stage and then going down the road to the Labour National Party conference and being welcomed with streamers and balloons and songs and chants being embraced by Bill Shorten and the Labour faithful. I have to confess that often... I think that the odds of people wanting to hear about Jesus is about the same odds of John Howard being welcomed with balloons and streamers at a Labour Party conference. I think that people don't, I assume that people don't really want to hear the good news. I assume that people's default position will be, what a ridiculous story. I assume that people's default position to hearing the good news about what God has done in Jesus will be ridicule. But the truth is that many people are starving for the gospel. They're starving for good news. They're starving for good news in a bad news world. 
People are starving for transcendence. That is, they're starving for something beyond themselves. Something outside themselves that they can grasp onto. Something beyond the mundane. They're starving for meaning. They're starving for hope. They're starving for significance. They're starving for love. They're starving for forgiveness. Forgiveness for the past and they're starving for freedom from from being the person that they don't want to be. And freedom from the person that they know they ought not to be. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you're longing for something transcendent, something meaningful. Perhaps you've searched for that. Perhaps you're still searching for that. You might have searched for it in lots of places. You might have searched for it in love, uh, in a relationship. You might have searched for it in sex or money or in holidays. You might have searched for it in your favourite sport, in reading, watching films, in renovating the house, in landscaping the backyard, doing up the car, finding the perfect job. You might have searched for that in other religions. But at the end of that long quest, you just feel flat, empty. It's like the day after the grand final, you know? Or the day after you get back from the holiday. Or the day after you get the results that you've always wanted in your university exams. Or the month after you got that dream job that you've worked all your life for. And you just think... What have I done? (laughs) What what was this all for? Empty. But the good news is that in Jesus, God meets our deepest needs. He, He meets our needs in ways that we never even expected them to be satisfied. We look for it over here and God satisfies it over here. And he meets the deepest needs that we never even knew that we had. He meets our deepest need, which is to know him and to be at peace with him. To be at peace with the God who made us and who loves us. In the gospel, God offers the remedy to our predicament. And it's not an empty remedy. It's not a false hope. It's not a kind of emotional band-aid. Paul and Barnabas were travelling around the Mediterranean because they'd really seen Jesus rise from the dead. And so they knew that the hope of the gospel is not an empty hope, but it's a real hope. It's a tangible hope. It's a concrete hope. Paul and Barnabas' first response they received to their ministry was enthusiasm and joy. But enthusiasm and joy also engendered jealousy and opposition. In verse 45, we're told, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then in verse 50, but the Jews inside of the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. In verse 14, we hear about a plan to stone them. 
There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. And then when Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra, they finally get their way. We're told in verse 19, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. Paul and Barnabas' mission invited abuse, slander, plots against them and violent persecution. It's not as though they were starting a political revolution. They weren't blowing themselves up in the name of God. They weren't kind of engaging in terrorist activities. They weren't forcing people to convert at gunpoint. They were simply going around and saying... God sent his son Jesus into the world because he loves us and he wants us to know him. He sent Jesus to die for us in order that we might be forgiven. In order that we might be made new, redeemed and restored. That's all they were saying. And people slandered them and hated them. Why were people so hostile? They were hostile because the reason we need the good news of the gospel is because there's the bad news of our rejection of God. We don't want to acknowledge God. We we don't like someone telling us what to do. And if we do want a God, we want a God that suits our needs. As I read someone call him uh, this week, Tim Keller calls him, a Stepford God, you know, like in the Stepford Wives film where the men all create their own robotic wives who do everything they want. They're the wives that they exactly want and we do the same with God. We create a God that we want who serves us and is like us. That is, we create us as our God. Well, that hostility still happens today. People are thrown in prison for speaking, for announcing the good news. A number of missionaries that we support as a church are in places where if it was found out what they were doing, those people would be in significant trouble. They're not undermining the government. They're not launching a revolution. They're trying to tell people about the love of God. And while you and I might not be thrown into prison, still acknowledging Jesus can be a risky enterprise. It can be a risky business. It can cause tension. It can put strain on previously good relationships. It can provoke verbal abuse and insults and derision. Philip Jensen uh, tells the story of a good friend of his uh, who had been and who wasn't a Christian, he'd been in a marriage, he'd been in a terrible marriage. He'd been, the, he'd been the cause of the terrible marriage. He was a drunk, he was violent, he was abusive. And his wife had put up with him for 20 years or 30 years or something like that. And this man heard the gospel and he became a Christian. And he went home and he said to his wife, you'll never guess what's happened. I've met Jesus. And his wife said, that's it. I could put up with the violence, I could put up with the abuse, I could put up with the drinking, but I can't put up with that. And she kicked him out. Paul and Barnabas summarise 
what they discovered on their mission trip in verse 22. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. It's hardly the prosperity gospel. It's the suffering and hardship gospel, the one that Jesus talked about. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. What an understatement. After their missionary trip, people trying to stone them, people verbally abusing them, Paul actually being stoned and left for dead. And those hardships are not just for capital M missionaries, but they're for any Christian who who acknowledges Jesus before others. There's only two ways to live, a narrow way and a wide way. The narrow way is hard, but Jesus takes us by the hand and he leads us through it. He drags us through it. He carries us through it. He shows us the way. And then there's the wide way. We don't need any help finding that way. It's easy going. It's well marked. Our society marks it out for us every day. This is the way you need to go. But that way leads to destruction, says Jesus. Paul and Barnabas' gospel ministry was received with enthusiasm and joy, but it also engendered jealousy and opposition. But it was also thirdly misunderstood. In 14.8 we read about how Paul and Barnabas head to this town called Lystra and there God does something utterly incredible. He heals someone. He heals this man who's been a cripple from birth. He's never walked uh, and finally he's healed. But instead of that leading people to Jesus, it actually leads people to think that Paul and Barnabas are themselves gods. They think that Paul is Hermes and that Barnabas is Zeus. They bring out sacrifices to offer them and they bring out wreaths to kind of uh, praise them. The uh, Latin poet Ovid from from that time or from an earlier time had recorded uh, a legend of Jupiter and Mercury. Jupiter and Mercury were known by the Greeks as Hermes and Zeus. And according to that uh, legend, Jupiter and Mercury had come to this region where Paul and Barnabas were visiting. And so the story goes that uh, a a local couple, an old couple, had put them up. They'd showed hospitality to these gods. And as a result, uh, their house was turned into a temple and they were turned into priests. Uh, And all the surrounding, all the other people in the the region were destroyed by uh, Hermes and Zeus. And evidently spurred on by that story, these people see the works uh, that God has done through Paul and they think, well, we better better be nice to these people. They treat them like gods. And Paul and Barnabas are so shocked and so desperate to stop them that they tear their clothes, they rush into the crowd. And in verse 15 they say, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you, we're bringing you the good news telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. Like so many other people after them, the people of Lystra misunderstood the gospel. They tried to fit Jesus into their existing worldview. Paul and Barnabas became, other, became gods within their existing way of looking at the world. But God's says Paul, calls us to turn from those worthless things, to turn from the worthless things that we've been committed to and to submit to Jesus and to trust in him. We don't fit Jesus into our view of the world. We don't sort of plug Jesus into our already overcrowded lives. 
Jesus isn't an accessory. He's not a new roof rack for our car. We don't fit Jesus into our view of the world. Jesus turns our lives upside down. We don't plug him into us. He plugs us into him. We don't fit him into our lives. He comes and grabs us and puts us in a new life, into his life, to share in his life. He gives us a new way of thinking, a new way of looking at the world, a new way of living. A helpful test to see whether we've understood the gospel properly is to ask the question, what has it changed? What has knowing Jesus changed about your life? Do you have new interests? Do you have new priorities? Or do you just do the same thing, exactly the same thing as you have always done? Has it changed the way that you speak to people? Do you speak to people with kindness and gentleness or abrasively with hostility? Has it changed what you do? Do you do what builds others up and leads to holiness or do you get tanked on Friday and meet up with friends during the week to grumble about everybody else? Has it changed your goal in life? From please help me to get ahead to please help me to know and love Jesus and to be like him. Has knowing the gospel changed anything? Or are you just on the same path as before? But you've got Sunday morning that you have to fit into the week. And not only has it changed anything in the past, but what does knowing Jesus change about your life now, today, in this past week, in the past month, in the past year? What has it changed? Has it changed anything or is it just about that moment 20 years ago when you heard this epic Bible preacher say something and you felt this tingling feeling in your spine and you thought, that's it, I'm a Christian Is it all about something that happened in the past or does knowing Jesus shape your life today? Paul and Barnabas come to the city, they preach the gospel and the people will go, fantastic, come on in. Do those miracles. We'll call you Zeus and Hermes. They misunderstood the gospel. They misunderstood the call to give up everything, to turn away from those worthless things and embrace Jesus Christ. What do we do when people misunderstand the good news and the need to die to themselves and live to Christ? We patiently explain to them the good news, the real good news, the real gospel, that if we give up ourselves to Jesus, we really live, we really know God, and he forgives us and makes us his children. Paul and Barnabas' gospel ministry was received with enthusiasm and joy, it engendered jealousy and opposition. It was misunderstood, but finally it also bore great fruit. Several times through this chapter we're told how people got the message. They got it, they received it with joy, and they entrusted themselves to Christ. Look at uh, chapter 13, verse 49. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. 
Acts 14.1, Luke says, At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. In verse 21, they preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. That success was not just a convenient bonus, but it was the work of God. Uh, Luke says in verse 48, All who were appointed for eternal life believed. Or in uh, 1427, Paul and Barnabas gather the church after they return from their missionary journey and they report all that God has done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Their ministry was attended by the power of God, by the power of God in miraculous ways, healing, but Paul surviving that incredible uh, stoning. But more importantly, their ministry was attended by the miracle of people surrendering themselves to Jesus. It's so easy, I think, to expect nothing of our mission and our evangelistic efforts, our efforts in sharing the gospel with people. We send people out, but with very little hope that anything will happen. We might share the gospel with a friend. We run an evangelistic survey series, but we expect nothing to come of it. We do it, we go through the motions but we don't expect anything to happen. The 19th century Baptist preacher Spurgeon tells a story of how a young man came to him once and complained that he'd been preaching for some time now and no one had been converted. And Spurgeon said, well, do you expect someone to be converted every time you open your mouth? No, said the man. Well, said Spurgeon, that's why you don't get souls saved. Spurgeon goes on to say that in our pessimism, we tremblingly believe that it's possible by some strange, mysterious method that once in a hundred sermons, God might win a quarter of a soul. Such people have hardly enough faith to keep them standing upright in their boots. How can they expect God to bless them? Spurgeon says, I like to go to the pulpit feeling this is God's word that I'm about to deliver in his name. It cannot return to him void. I have asked a blessing upon it, and he is bound to give it. And his purposes will be answered, whether my message is a savour of life unto life, or of death unto death to those who hear it. Paul and Barnabas' mission, more than anything else, is about the success Of the gospel going out? Yes. There was enthusiasm, joy. Yes, there was opposition and persecution. Yes, there was misunderstanding. But more than anything else, there was right understanding. There was reception. There was people being converted to Christ, to know Christ and to love him. Lives transformed, lives changed. Hope in a hopeless world. Paul and Barnabas' mission challenges us to expect more and hope for more and pray for more. It's not blind optimism, but expectancy and hope. I'm doing this and God will win the day. It's a trust that God can and does call people out of darkness and into his marvellous light. What gospel ministry has God given you? What opportunities has God given you to make the gospel known? Is it to children, neighbours, friends, 
colleagues, family? Is it in Sunday school teaching or with the youth? Is it in leading a growth group or helping disadvantaged people in the community? You should pray that God will use you and then believe that he will. Believe that God will work out his great gospel purposes through you and that nothing can stop him. God has done something incredible and wonderful in Jesus. It's good news. It's better news than the end of the Second World War. And God calls us to receive that with joy and then with joy make it known to others as well. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you have done in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have put an end uh, to our war with you, that in the cross of Jesus Christ you have announced an end to that war and a time of amnesty. That you have opened uh, the door to those who return to you and you have offered forgiveness and peace and restoration and a new life in Christ Jesus. And Lord, many of us have heard that and received that with, with real joy. Our lives have been changed by it and transformed by it. Lord, and we bear witness to you that you are the God who has authored that and done that. And we testify to the great goodness that you have brought into our lives. Of the wonder that it has been to grow in understanding and knowing you the joy of cleaving to Christ and holding firm to him, the peace of knowing that we're forgiven, that the past has been hurled into the depths of the sea and that our future is eternally secure. Lord, thank you for those wonderful blessings and those wonderful truths, which are not empty truths, but are, but are true truths, testified to by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Lord, thank you that uh, many of us have heard that good news and received it. And Father, we pray that you would enable us to share that good news with others too. That you might open their hearts, that they might receive it, that they might know what you have done for them. That the lengths that you have gone to, to put the world right, to put each of us right, if we trust in Jesus and receive him in faith. Lord, help us to trust that you can use us in that gospel ministry. Please use us and help us to see that. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.